Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, everybody's getting out at the movies. Residente goes global, and a Pepsi ad goes very, very wrong. We're buzzing with the latest in pop culture. Later in the show, financial abuse is a big factor in domestic abuse, but it's rarely discussed. The Purple Purse campaign aims to change that. That's coming up on the second half of our show. But first, joining me in the studio to chat about the latest topics and trends in pop culture, Michael Jeffries, Associate Professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. Hello, Michael. Hello, Callie. And Rachel Rubin, Professor of American Studies at University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hello, Rachel. Hello, Callie. All right, we got to start with this Ghost in the Shell movie that's out now. And frankly, I didn't know the history of it, but it's a Japanese manga anime that everybody was familiar with. Before you guys weigh in, let's just hear a little bit from the film. You are the first of your kind, but you're not invulnerable. Maybe next time you can design me better. Well, that's kind of pertinent to the conversation because that's Scarlett Johansson playing the lead role. You'll note she's not Japanese, and that, therefore, is the issue here. This has been called maybe the latest and biggest case of whitewashing in Hollywood. Rachel? It's very interesting because, of course, this is Hollywood's tradition. And I would go back, at least I think an important touchstone is Breakfast at Tiffany's, in which Mickey Rooney plays an Asian character, takes it way further, fakes the accent, you know, fakes the look and and so forth. So I think when something like this happens, it reminds us in a very productive way that one of the things movies do is shape how we think about things like race and ethnicity. Again, right, not a mirror, a shaper, you know, always has been how people are represented in movies, who gets parts in movies, who is allowed to kiss whom in movies, right, how certain actors have to change their names when they become famous, even what music's on the soundtrack. So I'm very interested in seeing the attention that's paid to this because it is a sort of window on a Hollywood truth, who gets awards, you know, for Mm. best picture and so forth, all of that. All of that is quite racialized. And it seems particular, at least recently, that maybe more publicly, because it's been going on for a while, as Rachel has said, Michael, but toward Asian actors and community in particular. And I guess, you know, we've had many discussions about colorblind casting. That's one thing. So this is an opportunity for you all to weigh in on how does this taking a person and the whole culture of it, because this is 
Japanese all the way around. And replacing that with a white actor is not okay. Where people will say, well, we could talk about colorblind casting. What's the problem? Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the specifically Asian dimension of this, it does add another sort of layer here. And another recent example is that Matt Damon movie, The Great Wall, right? Which is obviously rooted in Chinese traditions, cultures, and histories. And Damon takes plays the part and the movie flops just as this one did. I think there are a few things going on here. Right? One is that the Asian demographic in the U.S. is smaller than some of the other groups that are more typically associated as movie consumers. So, for example, Latino, Latina people are well known to be a driver of box office success. But because the Asian demographic is smaller, they think, well, well if we piss off that demographic, it really won't matter as much. We won't get hurt quite as much at the box office, right? But what this has shown is that that's not the case, right? Especially when you're dealing with anime, right, which has a hardcore fan base that is looking for some sort of authenticity in many respects. And if you're expecting those people to come out and drive sales, you better be as true to uh, the original product as possible. Regardless of whether or not the creator allows the casting to proceed in this way, the artistic freedom here is shaped by the fans' desire to see something that seems true to them. And if that's going to be the base of your consumers, you better give them something that they recognize as real. The other thing, um, Rachel, is that there are now Asian actors like Kai Pin, and uh, I am very familiar with Constance Wu from, people may know her from Fresh Off the Boat. She plays the mother. She's been really outspoken about just not this kind of travesty, but, but many others. Yeah, and then that's sort of what I was trying to say, is that this particular one is getting a lot of attention, but... It is actually not alone. It's the tradition. You know, sometimes it's very interesting to think about people's motivations. In the recent Doctor Strange movie, mm. right, there's a character who's played by an Asian man, and that's in the comic books, and it's like somewhat of an uncomfortable character, right? So this time they changed it and had it played by... Um, Tilda one- Swinton. Thank you, oh, well Tilda done. Swinton, you know. And so it was. there was a lot of discussion about that. Are they taking out the Asian character or are they trying to compensate for a sort of Orientalism that was created through that character? Well, I think this also is going to bring up another issue and maybe put to bed. We'll see. Because as you, as you, both of you said, fans have rejected this. And that means that they go into the foreign markets already down. And so their argument has been that we have to cast white characters because they don't sell overseas. But maybe this is putting a lie to that. We'll That's exactly see. right. Yeah. All right. Well, the biggest news in movies, of course, is Get Out. This was directed and created by Jordan Peele of the famous Key and Peel comedy troupe. I think it was originally meant to be a small movie and maybe attract an art house audience and certainly his fans, but it has blown up. As we speak, it's above the $100 million mark, and I think it's the biggest box office take for a movie that was both directed and written by the same person and a black person at that. So let's hear a little clip from it, and then we'll talk about what's this all about. You got your toothbrush? Check. You have your deodorant? Check. You have your cozy clothes? Got that. What? Do they know I'm black? Should they? You might wanna, you know. Mom and Dad, my black boyfriend will be coming up this weekend. I just don't want you to be shocked that he's a black man. All right, so the the premise of the movie is that Allison Williams, who plays the white girlfriend and the gentleman who plays her boyfriend, they arrive at her family house and then all kinds of things happen. 
And it's called Get Out because it's set in a horror genre, which is why I have not seen it, because I would be up all night. But but then from there, it goes into social commentary. This thing is blown up. What do you say, Michael? I think it's really interesting because one of the pieces that's always fascinates me about this discussion of race and racism in movies and pop culture is the idea that the remedy here is just diversity, right? That if we could only have different color faces on screen, that would be a huge step in the right direction. But what this film shows is not only that audiences have an appetite for diversity, but that audiences actually want to see satire and cultural criticism about social justice, really difficult topics, about the ways the legacy of slavery continues to shape ideas of blackness, uh, sex, and the consumption of black bodies. Those are difficult conversations to have and difficult topics to reckon with. And I think there was a fear on behalf of many who produce films that audiences wouldn't be ready for it. But this film shows that audiences are ready for it, and they do want to engage with these issues in the pop culture that they consume. So I think not just diversity, but dealing with really tough issues of racism and social justice in an appealing way, and in some cases a humorous way, can work at the box office. And Rachel, here's the thing. A lot of these kinds of films, they're used, you know, they come out strong and then they dip. This thing has just gone up and up and remained strong, which underscores what Michael has said. No, it absolutely <laughs> underscores Michael had said, but I would add a layer to that, you know, because when I was growing up in Baltimore, there were still neighborhood theaters and horror movies were extremely popular in black neighborhoods. And we would discuss it afterwards. But for instance, a black character would appear on the screen and everybody in the audience starts screaming, he's going to die. He's going to die because <laughs> they knew we went first. Um, and so we would talk it. We would talk about it afterward in, in my high school and people would say like, yes, of course, it's about race. It's about blood, you know. And they would say, if the black guy didn't die first, that would be some like pretty Hollywood fantasy. So it's very, very interesting to see how different audiences have responded. Now, when I saw Get Out, which had a lot to say, the audience was 100 percent white. They Hmm. didn't scream at the screen. They applauded very politely at the end. But there are these different ways in which horror movie audiences work with different audiences. Let me ask both of you, are you surprised because I've heard this from people who have seen it, that people sort of got what the point was. You know, it has a very serious point. And some of the folks that I've talked to said, I'm actually surprised that people got that. I figured people would go see it and go, well, that's not what it meant. Or that's not, you know, the real problem here. Are you, Michael? Yeah, well, I think (laughs) we would need to know more about the demographics of people who've actually gone to the movies, right? There's, you know, there are a lot of educated, culturally aware consumers who are really into movies like this and deal with not only the kind of heavy-handed critical messages, but so many of the hidden messages and the kind of, they call them like Easter eggs that they are, that are hidden in the scene, these visual signifiers. So there's a, a segment of people who go to the movies are really into this. But but some of the surprise, I think, is just an underestimation of the way that, or the ability of the general public to think critically about race and racism, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and, and that's what holds us back in so many of our discussions this idea that we need to treat it with kid gloves, Mm -hmm. right? That we can't really delve into the pain and the suffering and the violence of race and racism uh, because it's too dangerous, it's too touchy. But that's not the case. This is our history. This is real history that we all need to address and grapple with. And the other piece of this, I think, is that people went to the film already knowing about Jordan Peele and his work. Mm. And the kind of comedy that Peele did with his show Key and Peele, right, some of the kind of rawness of that show finds its way into the film. 
So he already had a kind of built-in group of loyalists who were going to go and see the movie because they wanted to see the next step in his evolution as a creator. I agree with you, Michael, but I would think that that would be a small number of people. So what this movie has done is brought the base, but then expanded it. So that's why I'm asking you both the question, are you surprised that people sort of got the point? Because he has a very serious point here. He has a very serious <laughs> point, many serious points. You know, that's that's the fascinating thing. And you refer to them as like little hidden Easter eggs. There are these references to other movies. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the title is Get Out, which refers to the Amityville horror. But I think the movie that is the most consistently evoked is The Stepford Wives. Very similar scenes in the yard. And, and you know, it's about taking control of the bodies of somebody who doesn't have equal rights. So I think that it is interesting that people would be coming to the movie with different literacies because that's how it works, right? And that's one reason movies are, can be so effective is there are these different ways to reach different people. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Michael Jeffries from Wellesley College and Rachel Rubin of UMass Boston. You just heard her, and we're talking pop culture. Well, you can't miss this news, Pepsi's ad with Kendall Jenner. I just have to say before you all speak, really? I mean, are we, 2017, was nobody in the room, Rachel? What is going on? <laughs> See, that's well, let's describe what it is first. So okay. if people haven't seen it, it's an ad by Pepsi. It's supposed to be a feel-good thing. Kendall Jenner plays a model or something on the side. She's wearing a blonde wig. Then she throws off the blonde wig because there's a protest of some sort. We're not clear what it is going on. And she feels moved to get into it. And then when she gets into it, she grabs a Pepsi. And it looks very much like a Black Lives Matter situation because there's a line of protesters and a line of cops, except everybody's happy. And then she gives uh, one of the cops a Pepsi and then everybody cheers. So there you have it. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm going to go cynical on this one. Okay. So there are two things that immediately occurred to me. One is that I think it's quite possible that Pepsi did this thing knowing they'd have to pull it but that they would get all sorts of good attention at both moments, you know, for putting mm-hmm. it out there and doing it. I mean, I've, there's been other advertisements where that have happened in that same sort of stagey way. So that's like my suspicion. The other thing is this, it's horrifying. It really made me angry. And then I started thinking of other advertisements that have done similar things and really, really made me angry. You know, there's one advertisement that took Creedence Clearwater's Fortunate Son, this like Mm. serious anti-war song, and turned it into something funny in an advertisement. The one that got me the most is GE used the music from a mining song, 16 Tons, which is just very class conscious and talks about how like miners, you know, you could you load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. And like the energy company used this about, isn't mining wonderful? So there is this tradition of taking over cultural speech acts and the, um, the protest march, and this one was one of them. And, you know, you said it reminded you of a Black Lives Matter protest, which it did. But there's also the way, and many people are talking about this, that it visually deeply invokes that one black woman who stood the right. photograph that Aisha iconic photograph, mm-hmm. right? She stood there facing down the line and like, no, she didn't take a Pepsi out of her purse and give it to those cops and have everybody cheer, right? But there, I think that is being invoked as well. 
And I also have to say, like, part of this deal is Jenner pulls off her hat and it's like, no, her wig. I'm sorry. She knows she's not blonde. Look at her. She's all going natural. And it's like, well, how many minutes do you think they spent trying to make her look natural with her dark hair? Michael. Uh, there's, I mean, Rachel, you've said so many things that are, that are right on the mark here. I think there are a couple more we might add. I mean, one is the intent the statement they released said something about sort of evoking a spirit of unity. And that's kind of what they were supposedly going for. And I think the other uh, possible intent, right, is to tap into a kind of youthful exuberance as if the spirit of protest is all about youthful exuberance and not about justice, mm. right? And that's what makes it so frustrating is it trivializes and erases what the protesters are actually there for. They're not there because they're young. In fact, we know huge generational differences and diversity in many of these protest actions. They're there because people are suffering, right? And that gets totally erased when you reshape it as this kind of trendy thing that young people do. In addition, right, Specifically when we're talking about Black Lives Matter, which is largely about police violence. And the police are in the foreground of this particular commercial, which is what makes Black Lives Matter the primary cultural reference point, despite the fact that there are other protests going on around the country. And then you erase blackness in the way that it's erased in this particular commercial, not only by the star of the commercial, Jenner, but if you look at the racial composition of much of the crowd, it's a much more sort of multicultural and lighter skinned crowd mm -hmm. than we see at many of the Black Lives Matter actions, right? It trivializes and insults and erases the history of Black Lives Matter in particular. Mm -hmm. For all those reasons, right, this isn't just some sort of neutral misstep, right, but to reframe the complaints and erase the injustice that's been done is actually contributing, I would argue, to the oppression, not just getting it wrong, mm -hmm. but contributing to the problem. Let me just uh, bring up this tweet sent by Bernice King. She's the daughter of Martin Luther King Jr., and she sent a photo of a line of cops one with his hands on her father, pushing him back. And what she wrote was, if only daddy would have known about the power of Pepsi, which <laughs> is really quite to the point and pointed. So what gets me, and I, I just want to ask you both about this, is there seems to be even a more <laughs> insulting situation because it's Kendall Jenner. Kendall Jenner represents this fascination with a celebrity, and we know how it started. It just seemed to me a, bit a double whammy insult because it was Kendall Jenner as the actress in question. Am I alone in this? How did you respond to that? I don't, you know, <laughs> that whole sort of Kardashian's world has always sort of mystified me. I know we've talked about it on, yes. the, air, on the air before, and, and Rachel has kindly explained that fascination to me. So, you know, the, the Kendall Jenner thing is hard for me to parse, I think in part because I can't even keep track of all the different politics of the Kardashian family. However, that family does have a kind of history and a kind of troubled relationship specifically with blackness. If you think just of the Kim and Kanye relationship and of course uh, the Rob Kardashian and Black China relationship right. is another sort of example of this. So there's a willingness to play kind of free and loose with the racial politics of the people that they uh, engage in their lives and kind of wrap up in their brand. For that reason, I suspect, it makes a lot of uh, a lot of people uneasy. And Rachel, they apologized to Kendall Jenner in their apology, <laughs> which I found particularly offensive. <gasps> That's you, really she really, was getting paid. I uh, know, and she signed on. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, the, so the conclusion of Kendall Jenner to me is actually quite instructive because in the first place, when you have those reality TV shows, they're blurring the line between 
well, reality and TV and, you know, and script, scripted TV shows. And now you take somebody from one of the reality TV shows and it blurs the line between reality and advertising. Right. And it is really important for us to remember that reality is being shaped by both of them. You know, reality TV, it is, no, it's not some like totally uh, neutral mirror of what is. And obviously commercials aren't. But they're telling us that they are because people are used to watching Kendall Jenner in a particular structure. I'll be interested to see how Pepsi follows up with this in their advertising, because I don't even know which Pepsi product they were trying to promote because that got lost. So if, in fact, this was deliberate, Rachel, they lost on that point, let me just say, because we don't know what it was. So (laughs) let's talk about Residente. He's a very popular musician. He's been the voice of Kaye 13, which is a Puerto Rican hip hop crew. And he was well known by everybody and particularly a big force at South by Southwest, which, as you know, often brings some people to the fore that other folks didn't know about. Anyway, he's was with the group and now he's left it to do a solo project. I don't know if he's left them totally, but it's taken him all around the world. And it, and it stemmed from taking a DNA test and finding out where he had roots. And he built it off of that, Rachel. Rachel, you're the music person. What do you think about this? This is pretty interesting. There are two things about yeah. it that make me really, really happy. Yeah. Okay, One is that I very much like art that makes people uncomfortable. So my children get tired of hearing me say that. Well, one of them does. But, you know, so some of the work he's doing is really uncomfortable, and I think that's what it's supposed to do, sort of unsettle you, like push you to think in a new direction or understand something in a new framework. So I admire that very much. And then the other thing I admire, and I think this actually goes back quite well to the Kardashian slash Jenner thing, is very often when musicians and other artists sort of find out what works for them in the marketplace, they say, okay, I have to keep doing this, Mm. right? This is the thing. And he didn't, right? It was working for them. And he was like, okay, I've done that. Now it's time for me to find something new. So the new stuff is extremely challenging and really sort of pushes understanding. It's I'm very happy about its global focus, for instance, but it's not just the global focus, but there's like a global focus that has to do with relative power. So I'm in. I think he's great. Uh, It's also a documentary film and an interactive website, Michael. But what do you think? It's a great example of of what music and pop culture can be today. I mean, two things here worth noting. One is this guy's got a really interesting backstory, right? He's a Puerto Rican national by birth. He goes to school in the States. He actually went to art school, and then he becomes a musician much later in his life. So the kind of general model of becoming a popular musician is you better get started early because by the time you're 30, it's, it's too over. late. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that right. that hasn't right. been the case uh, for him. And so he's been transnational from the very beginning just by virtue of his, of his biography. And, and the second point about that is that in our current political moment, when there's so much anxiety and paranoia and xenophobia about globalization, global society versus nationalistic societies or nationalism more broadly, and the movement of people from one place, one nation state, or one geographic region to another. This project is saying, look, this is our collective history. This globalization is not something new. We have pieces in us from all different regions, all different corners. That's who we are as people. This isn't a recent choice. This is fundamental to who we are. We move. We change. We draw on different histories. We make hybridity our own. 
And he's performing that not only through telling his, his story, but also in his music, which Absolutely. is a hybrid music. Absolutely. He raps in Spanish and English. He has elements of rock with more traditional hip-hop. So he's really managed to do something that's incredibly rare, I think. He's arrived at a perfect time with his anxiety mm -hmm. about globalism, and he's living it out in a way that's really authentic to him. He's not catching on as a trend. This is who he's been from the beginning. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Michael Jeffries. You just heard him from Wellesley. And Rachel Rubin from UMass Boston, our pop culture panelists. We are talking about, just finishing up with Residente. Let me just say, just to be clear for people, so if you're hearing this and thinking it's, well, haven't other people done it? Because when I first read this, I thought people are going to think, oh, yeah, Paul Simon. Remember when he sort of hung out with Lady Smith, Black Mombaza, and they did some stuff together? This is an entirely different. This is a really from-the-ground-up, integral kind of musical experience when he went to these various places around the world. They were talking China and Russia and many other places that had pieces of his DNA. So I just want to make people know that it's not kind of a background thing. It's very much different in the way that, Rachel, you were saying, was really quite risky, actually. All right, let's go on to cord cutting. This is really interesting to me. There are two really good examples of serious cord cutting giving people maybe back their control, which I'm all for. Amazon has just gotten the streaming rights to Thursday night football games. Now, in the past, what stopped a lot of people from cutting the, the cable cord is they couldn't get the sports. This is a huge package deal, which allows people to watch these football games, and I think at a reasonable price. It was expensive for Amazon to get it, but people will be able to log on and to stream the games. The other thing is YouTube's new TV service, which is now online. Now, that is missing a few things, I think. But if you do this, this is $35 a month where you are getting many, many channels, ABC, CBS, Fox, NBC, ESPN, and Fox Sports. That's huge if you're trying to move away from cable, but you wanted to get some traditional channels. That was announced a while ago, but it's now started. And you have this. What's the shakeup? How is this going to play out, you guys? I mean, what we've said in the past, people can cord cut and it's happening. But these two things taken together seem to me to be really powerful. Yeah, I think we're moving toward even greater specialization, right, and the sort of further rise of niche markets. And right now, you've you've seen them gain some flexibility in shaping the packages the way the consumers want. And I think what we're moving in the direction of really specific, really individualized packages of kind of channels, whether it's YouTube streaming or Netflix or Amazon or whatever it might be. And the other you know, huge point in all of this is the rise of YouTube, Amazon, Netflix, as people who want to do more than wherever they started, right? I mean, you think of what Amazon was when it began yeah. and what it is now. I mean, this is an entirely different, they could be a bank, they could be an energy company 15, 20 years from now. We don't really know what the limit is. And on one hand, I think it's a good thing to celebrate these, uh, especially when these companies get into production of film and television because it broadens the range of products and shows that we have available to us, right? So it's nice for us when Netflix gets into the business, when Amazon gets into the business, they start producing shows that you just wouldn't find on CBS or Fox. But if all they end up doing is <laughs> uh, increasing their market share and looking more and more like the old cable companies <laughs> used to look, then we're to, the scale is going to tip too far in the wrong direction, mm -hmm. and we're going to see a kind of re-centralizing of decision-making, and some of those choices, I think, are going to get narrower and narrower and narrower. So right now, we're at a great spot, but I worry that if this trend continues, it's going to go too much in the other direction. What about you, Rachel? 
Yeah, I think it's already gone too much in the other direction, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. You know, especially with Amazon, which mm. it just like acquires and acquires and acquires. And now, you know, you can order food, take out food from restaurants through Amazon. You know, like whatever it is, they sort of find a way to get it under their umbrella. I mean, it, it's also very interesting to be reminded, sometimes depressing, that like the games and the shows are products. And so that's corporations fighting over who gets to distribute the products. But see, Rachel, this is the thing. I I absolutely agree with you about corporations and, you know, their evil intent in general. But I want my choice to decide what products. And I am infuriated at the cable companies continuing to make me take sports packages that I do not want. So you could probably sell me another package with some other stuff I would want, but you make me take this. So my anger increases. And I hear about this. I don't even like football. I might sign up for this just because I'm mad about it. (laughs) No, I I know. But, But here's the thing, though. It's like that is a strategy of corporations. Like they tell you what to watch and they tell you what to like and they tell you what you're supposed to wear. I mean, it isn't just both directions. Right. Right. Well, that's true. So so I think we should keep our eyes open for that. And I also think we should keep our eyes open for more young people watching their phones in the car now while they're driving and the game is on. Right. Well, that's true, too, because what this all means is that cable has gone away from my niece visited me several years ago in the summer she never looked at television she never turned it on so anyway i'll be watching that i'm very interested in it all right a lot of buzz on social media because michelle obama who's chilling on vacation wore her hair natural a lot of response to it so here's one response saying this is the picture i've been waiting for for three years come on natural i remember wishing with all my heart flotus would walk out with her fro out somebody else's perfect natural beauty she's perfection and people gave a lot of credit to her fabulous celebrity hairstylist who sort of kept her all blowy and flowy through the whole time when she was doing the the job but now she doesn't have to do the job, so she can do whatever she wants. And it's a l- lovely picture of her with a you know, kind of a headband and her hair pulled back, but it's totally not straightened. What does this mean? How do we interpret that other than people, some people finding joy in it? Well, yeah, and it's interesting because there is what is now what is called a natural hair movement, and you can go on YouTube and look at tons of presentations about it. There are meetups here in Boston for people interested in it. I've had several students who want to write about um, natural hair movements. So it is part of a movement. It's hard for me to be totally open to the word natural Hmm. in a number of ways um, because... What do you mean? Just because so much of it is... Well, first of all, you... It's been determined by others what natural should be? It is, is, but determined by others, that's Mm -hmm. what part one is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, nothing is really natural. Like, if I would love for her to come out with with an afro, like, what if the letter writer said, but that takes a lot of work. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly natural. And then the other thing is there is this tendency to use natural when talking about African-American bodies in a Mm. historically racist way. So, you know, maybe that's just sort of showing my age. But I do think it's very interesting to see... People taking that back to some degree and to say it's okay for a woman not to have, like, other people messing with her appearance all the time. 
The politics of black hair has a very long history, right? Very and we can't, long, very And we can't complex. possibly get into it here. But I, but I think one thing that's unique about this particular moment, and again, if we broaden out and look at the historical context or look at what's happening right now, is these images have appeared on the Internet at a time when the continued surveillance and insulting of black women for the way they look, no matter how high their standing is in society, has ramped up again, right? Look at the way Maxine Waters was just treated. That's true. Uh, that is right. By, uh, what was People don't know she's a representative from uh, California, and Bill O'Reilly said he couldn't listen to what she was saying on the floor of the House because of the James Brown wig she had on her head. That's exactly right. Let me just point out that the woman Fox host that he was speaking to did say in the moment, listen, I can't go with you there. You don't talk about a woman's looks, but just go ahead. And that's and, and that's exactly the point, yeah. right? The context for this is that black women continue to be attacked despite their professional standing and record of achievement. And they're under tremendous pressure to shape themselves and present themselves in a way at work, right? There was a recent Twitter campaign, the Black Women at Work, that it was a result of some of the stuff that had been going on with Maxine Waters. And it's in that moment that this image of Michelle Obama appears. So she's pushing back on the politics of responsibility, even if it's not her concern, right? The kind of post-presidency Obamas seem to be living a carefree life. Yeah. So they may not even be worried about it, but their performances still matter to the public. All right, our last topic. Do looks free you from all other things if you're American? Is this a particular American phenomenon? So I got two cases here. Criminal Jeremy Meeks, people may remember him from a few years ago. He was caught for some petty crime and jailed, and his mugshots went viral, and they call him the hot felon. He's 32 years old, and now he drives a $150,000 Maserati legally because he's a model. Mama June, as people may know, is a mama of Honey Boo Boo, who was a reality TV show star, and she herself is now one. Lost weight, close to 300-pound self. She's now down to a size four and seems to be given much more of a, I don't know, is respectable, in quotes, a way. So let's weigh in, Rachel. What do you think? Well, one of the things that I think is important to note here is that it's not just judging whether good looks matter. In both cases, what is considered good-looking is being defined, right? Mm -hmm. So in the case of Mama June, it's get yourself skinny. In the case of Jeremy Meeks, you know, who is very good-looking, but it's important to note that he's African-American, he has really light skin, and he has blue eyes. Mm -hmm. So there's this sort of simultaneous policing of women's bodies, policing of black bodies. So it's a question also of saying, you know, what is good-looking. That said, I want to end about the talking about the felon, that it really does show that, hey, you know what? If you have a job, then you'll quit being a criminal. <laughs> okay, I'm Michael. I'm just saying, All we right. need more jobs. <laughs> okay. We need more jobs and less incarceration. I got that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how, <laughs> okay. how, how unique to America some of these stories are, or the obsession with looks. I mean, but I think really what's at stake here is what you point out is these are stories about deviance. Right. I mean, the reason that these people became spectacles is because they've identified as deviant in some way. And to repair that damage through a sort of repair of their image is to ignore all the structural factors, right, that define what that deviance is, right? The poverty. The poverty is why Mama June was so big. That's exactly right. right. The poverty right. in Mama June's case, the poverty and the lack of a, leg- a connection to the legitimate economy in, in Meeks's case. And those are the issues, right? It's a, When we can repair character without talking about the ways character and culture are shaped by structure, that's a huge distraction. 
Is that a particularly American thing? Because it feels that way to me, turning our gaze away from some of the other things that you said. Well, the celebrity Mm -hmm. industry, I mean, has a particular history that's rooted in the United States. But I think at this point, it's a global industry, right? So Mm -hmm. I think that's... It has spread. It's really bad here, though. (laughs) Well, I thank you both for your insights. Thank you, Callie. Michael Jeffries is an associate professor of American Studies at Wellesley College, and Rachel Rubin is a professor of American Studies at University of Massachusetts, Boston. Coming up, why don't you just leave? It's a question posed to many domestic abuse victims. It's tough enough for those who are abused to leave, and when the abuser has control of the money, it may seem nearly impossible. How to spot financial abuse and the Allstate Foundation's mission to end the destructive cycle. That's up next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.